Welcome to the Living the Dream podcast with Curveball. If you believe, you can achieve. John is also an author. John grew up having a heroin dealer for a parent, and he also had to cope with the trauma of being molested as a young boy. So this made him fall into drugs and alcohol. But 35 years ago, his family requested that he join rehab, and that's what he did. So we're going to be talking to him about his life and about what he's doing to help people that went through the same type of traumatic experiences that he did. So, John, thank you so much for joining me today. Alrighty. Thank you, Curtis. Anybody that's doing God's work and helping God's kids, I'm interested in. Well, why don't you start off by telling everybody, giving everybody a little bit of background about yourself? Okay. Uh, well, when I was, uh, my life story goes, when I was uh, eight years old, my father went to jail uh, for selling uh, heroin. When I was eight and a half, uh, my, you know, my mother told me that my father uh, went on a sales trip. And then what happened was I found out through the kids in the neighborhood, I don't know how they knew, but they did, that my, they, used to, they called me my father was a con. You know, that's another one for jailbird. And, you know, I, I got into a fist fight about that. And then I went home and I said, Mom, they said that dad's in jail. Is that true? She says, she looked down and she said, yes, I didn't want to tell you. And then I never trusted her again after that. You know, all she was trying to do was didn't want to cause me pain and anguish. But, you know, I was a little kid. What do I know? And anyway, at eight and a half, I got molested by the boys in the neighborhood. And that was a little confusing because there was a part of me that, that liked it. And I couldn't understand why would I like it just for a split second. And I felt very dirty and I felt very ashamed and very guilty about all that. And, you know, I, I even uh, went to a priest and asked him if I had evil inside of me to take it out. And he said, do 10 Hero Marys and five hour fathers and you'll be fine. So I don't know. I don't know if it worked for anybody. It didn't work for me. Anyway, as time went on, uh, my dad uh, got out of prison when he was, uh, when I was 12. And uh, I never forgot what happened was we were so happy. My brother and I were jumping up and down dad's home and uh, all of this stuff. And, you know, meanwhile, before, let me go backwards a little bit. When I was 10, I went up getting into gangs and all kinds. I was in a black gang. I was in a Hispanic gang. I was in an Irish gang. An Italian guy was in all kinds of gangs. And um, when I was 12, my father got out of jail. And I was really happy and, and things like that. And I was uh, in the neighborhood and I had, wound up having a fight with one of the kids in the neighborhood who was a boxer. And he beat me really bad. I got black eye, I got a swollen lip. And I went upstairs to tell my dad, I said, you know, what happened? I figured... He was going to go down and straighten it out. Well, that didn't happen. What that did was he told me, you can't, I don't want you back in this house until you beat that guy. So you can't come home. He says, I don't care how you got to do it, but you're not coming back here. So I went downstairs. I didn't know what to do. And 
I figured, well, maybe I'll make friends with this guy. You know, maybe he'll leave me alone. So I went over to the guy and I said, listen, why don't we forget what happened? And he said, sure. He says, let's shake hands. So he shook my hand, held my hand, and punched me with the other hand in the face. Well, that didn't go over too good. I went down the block crying, and I ran into a friend of mine, this guy Joey. And he said, well, he asked me what happened to me, and I told him. And he says, look, you can beat this guy. I said, no, I can't. He's a boxer. And, you know, this is before I took karate classes and stuff. So I says, no, I can't. He says, yes, you can. So I don't know what happened. He gave me the courage I believe that somebody was in my corner. And anyway, I went back uh, to where this kid was and I told him, hey, you know, and he says, hey, he says, I'm going to now, did you look in the mirror and look at your face? So he said, now I'm going to rearrange your face like nobody's going to recognize you. So he went to throw a punch at me. I don't know what happened. I ducked down. I grabbed him by his legs, his ankles, and I threw him up over my back and I proceeded to beat him up and down the ground and people trying to pull me off. And he said, I give up, I give up. And I just kept hitting him until they finally pulled me off of him. So I went up to my father and I said, dad, I beat him. He slapped me in the face and says, get to bed. You're supposed to do that in the first place. So that was my first lesson on never giving up. And uh, as life went on, uh, when I was 14 and a half, I joined uh, one of the joined a karate class, but for all the wrong reasons. We were driving by a karate school, my friend and I, and I says, hey, I wonder if we can, uh, let's go see if we can beat up the karate uh, instructor. I, I suggest uh, don't do that, by the way. Anyway, we went up there, and um, it was, um, karate class was going up, but it was getting late. So I had to get home because my father would stand by the door with a belt, and if I was late, I'd get my, uh, my ass beat in plain English. So the next day, I, I wanted to go join the class, you know, and uh, my father says, my mother said, no, you can't do that. You're going to get hurt. My father says, you're going to join. It's okay. So anyway, you had to sign a piece of paper because you had to be 15 at the time to join a karate class. This was in 1962. So we went there and it was a jujitsu class. I didn't know it was jujitsu. I didn't know the difference, you know. Uh, all I wanted to do was beat up the teacher. I thought it was a real tough guy, but I really wasn't as tough as I thought I was. Anyway, uh, we, we sat around, we exercised, we did rolls on the floor and everything, we all sat in a circle. And the instructor at the time was this short little guy with a round face and his arms would look like little cylinders and a round stomach. And he said he's going to teach us how to block a punch. So I'm saying to myself, this guy's got to be kidding me. So anyway, he asked for a volunteer. So I raised my hand right away and I stood up. And as he was talking, I decided to sneak punch him in the head. Well, I suggest also don't do that. Uh, next thing I know, I was on the floor. I had a foot in my throat and I had this big round face staring at me and smiling. Well, let me tell you something. I was so shocked and so, so enamored about this. I could not believe what happened. And I wanted to join the class. I would go every day as much as I can. I practiced home. And um, I became a, a karate champion and a jujitsu champion also. And uh, so I became a judo champion too. And I took judo, jujitsu, and karate. 
I won a bunch of championships and I became very well known in the karate and jujitsu and judo area. And um, I wanted to go to Florida. So what happened was I told my karate teacher uh, that I was going to Florida, but I wanted my black belt in karate. I had my black belt in judo. I had my black belt in jujitsu. And I didn't have a black belt in karate. And that's what I wanted. So he told me, he says, look, he didn't want me to leave because I was one of the top students in class along with my other buddy. And he said, look, what I want you to do is if you take first place in Gary Alexander's tournament, which was the biggest tournament in the country, people came from everywhere to compete. And first place in the other tournament, which was this guy Pete Serengano in Jersey's tournament, I'll give you a black belt. I said, look, Sensei was Sensei means teacher. Could, could I at least take second place maybe in one of them? So he says, okay. So I guess he thought I wasn't going to win. Well, all my dojo brothers and sisters lost or got disqualified. And I was the only one left. And the pressure was on. And um, I got up there and I went up fighting, I think it was about nine or ten people to get to um, the, the end where you do the finals. And I wound up winning. And I took first place. And I was like elated. And then the next day, I had to fight again. We fought about eight or nine guys. Again. And the last match for first and second place, I was fighting my, my other dojo brother. And um, I used to always wear a, a judo uniform, which is very baggy. And um, what happened was he threw a sidekick at my, underneath my armpit. And it was about six, eight inches away. It hit my end of my gi. And uh, my gi is a uniform, by the way. And they gave him the last point. It was 2-2. Two, two. And um, even he said to the, the referee, no, 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 no. It wasn't even a point. They said, no, no. I said, look, Alice, forget about it. It's okay. I got my black belt now. So I got my black belt, went to Florida. And uh, it was very interesting. I never did drugs. I never did anything. You know, I was always competing. And I was teaching karate uh, at the Carillon Hotel uh, on the sun deck up there. And what was happening was I'd be getting students, but they were getting high coming to my class. And I says, what are you doing, man? So I would work them out, have them throw up, and figure that will discourage them. Well, they came back next time, and they were high again. And the day they said, listen, Sensei, you never tried it. You don't know. And I said, I don't care. So I worked them out again and got him sick. Then one day I went home and there was a neighbor and um, he had this little vial with liquid in it. And I said, what's that? He said, well, that's LSD. He says, pure LSD. I said, yeah, let me see. So I've heard about it. So I took it and I drank the whole bottle. He freaked out because it was five hits for five people. And I went on a journey for about four days. Night and day, no sleeping. Everything looked like cardboard. It was the weirdest thing. Colors were flying. All kinds of crazy thoughts in my head. And I was going to, I told him, I said, look, I don't know why I said this. He said, I said, look, you look like a frog. I think I want to kill you. So what wound up happening was, he said, oh, look at that light. And he changed my mind. And I went into a different direction. So that's how I started my drugs. And I did every drug note to man. I did acid. I did peyote. I did psilocybin. I did, uh, you name it, I did it. 
And um, as time went on, you know, I got married to the girl that I met in Florida. And that's, I don't want to give away the whole story of the book. So I'm just going to give you pieces. Um, the book I wrote, The Kid from the South Bronx, who never gave up. So what happened was we wound up getting married, this girl and I. And uh, my uncle threw the wedding. Now, my father was a heroin dealer. My family was like a mafia family. Uh, I quit school in the ninth grade. Uh, so uh, I was always embarrassed about it. I couldn't spell well. And, uh, you know, I was embarrassed about the way I spoke because I'm a New Yorker. And, um, you know, my, my English wasn't that great, my grammar. But anyway, so what wound up happening was he threw the wedding. We went up to New York. And uh, it was really interesting. The, the girl that was married was Jewish. I'm not Jewish. I'm Italian. And the family didn't want to marry somebody who wasn't Jewish, but they liked my family. Well, that's what they know. I didn't like my family. So, you know, so everything went well. Anyway, we had the wedding. And on one side, the uh, uh, father was a lawyer. A mother was the head of the PTA. And on my side of the family were all racket guys and uh, guys with guns and their holsters underneath their suit jackets. And on the other side, the lawyers and the doctors, they all had pens. <laughs> so anyway, um, the caterer insulted my family member. And the next morning, they killed him. Then we were at my grandmother's house and my grandmother got a phone call and says, you got to leave. I said, what do you mean I got to leave? I got four hours to get to the airport. So he, she said, no, you got to leave now. The detectives are coming over the house. I said, what happened? He says, well, we believe your uncle killed a caterer. I said, what? Well, anyway, let God for my mother. She said, oh, John gets anxiety. Let's all go to the airport. So we left to the airport. And um, in the in the story, in the book, it tells you what happened to my uncle. It happened, he didn't get charged. He went away to going into a mental institution, got out in two years. They couldn't prove he did it. And the case was dismissed. Meanwhile, I went on the journey of uh, using drugs with my marriage and destroying that. Uh, I got married to another girl and um, for nine years, and we destroyed that. We had two kids, and uh, it was a nightmare. You know, drugs destroyed people's lives. And, uh, of course, we blame everybody else for what's going on with us. And um, anyway, so we got married, this girl and I, she was a Playboy bunny. And uh, we we both were empty, two empty people getting married is not a good idea, especially when you add drugs into the mix. And then we had children and that made it even worse. And uh, it was just a terrible relationship. And it got to a point where I wind up becoming my family. I wind up selling drugs. I wind up doing collection work for the smugglers. Uh, I wind up doing all kinds of crazy stuff to make money. Because my wife always said, oh, we don't have any money. You know, I have to make enough money. What is going on? You know, we got kids and family. And that's what I wind up doing. But what happened was my mother and my family wind up doing an intervention on me. And an intervention is what family members get together and they, they talk you into going to treatment. So 
I told you what my family was, they were a mafia-type family, and they're asking me to go to treatment. I'm wondering who's telling them to go to treatment. But anyway, what happened was my mother said she'll never talk to me again, so I said, okay, I'm going to go. I figured to myself that, look, let me just get them off my back, uh, you know, just take a break. And uh, I had a little Coke in my sock. I went into the bathroom to the least the, the the last hit on the cocaine, and I wind up uh, going upstairs to treatment. Now, I thought this was all bullshit, to be honest with you. What am I doing here? And the problem was I taught most of the doctors and the nurses' kids karate. So I put on my sunglasses thinking that nobody's going to know who I am. That's how at the lunch I was. And the first thing that happened was uh, this kid came up from the – the office, the hospital office, and um, the financial office to talk to me about finances. And um, it was my student. So that ended. Then they wanted me to talk in group. I said, I wouldn't even get high with you people. You want me to talk to you? So I'm not telling you what goes on with my life. You know, uh, I was a very resistant client. I never unpacked my bags. I always had them in the closet, pulling shirts out, all wrinkled. Because uh, every moment I was at the elevator with my bags leaving. And he would say, John, why don't you go talk to the therapist? Oh, John, go talk to the doctor. And I wound up staying. And what happened to me was really interesting. It was, I, I was in treatment during Christmas time. I went in December 4th. And that, well, December 4th makes it 37 years now I'm in recovery. On December 4th, it's 37 years. So um, I went and told him, look, I want to go home. It's uh, Christmas Eve. And he said, no, no, you can't go home. So I got crazy, angry. I punched the door, went out of their office. And I didn't know about anybody else, but anyway, I just got angry. Okay, I got rageful. And I was really pissed off. I was throwing stuff around my room. And uh, the reason I wanted to go home was not because I wanted to see my kids. Okay, it was because my friends would give me Christmas cards with Coke in it. So what happened was in my head, I hear my therapist telling me, John, you ever pray on your knees? Okay, and I remember him saying that, and I said to him, look, I'm a recovering Catholic. I got calluses on my knees. Forget about that. What do you mean, God doesn't hear you? You know, I was pissed off at God. I was pissed off at everybody, you know, including myself. So I remember him saying, well, what about humility? I said, humility? I said, what, what do you, give me a break, you know? But it was in my head. And he says, you know what? I was in a lot of pain. I says, okay, let me get down on my knees. So I went to get down on the first knee. And, and uh, every time I think about it, I get like a little emotional. I couldn't put my knee down. I, I know this may sound a little weird to some of you, but it just wouldn't go down. So I pushed it down. Then I pushed my other knee down. And for the first time, I prayed to whatever, God, whatever you want to call it, okay, to do his or her will and relieving of this. And I got to tell you something. It went away. My anger went away. My rage went away. And that never happened before. And what happened was I, I tried to get it back. That's how sick I was. And it wouldn't come back. 
And that was the beginning of my recovery, which I call a spiritual awakening. And, um, you know, like in, in about three and a half weeks or three weeks, they have a thing called exiting. I still wasn't well, of course. And um, I went to exiting, and exiting is where the doctor, the nurses, and the therapist, and the staff, they put you in there, and they tell you how you did, and if you need long-term treatment or more treatment, or you can go home. So I was freaked out. I didn't want to stay anymore. So I go in there, and the doctor says, oh, John's doing much better, and the nurse is saying, oh, yeah, he's more compliant. And the head doctor, this woman, turns around and says, He's full of shit, just like that. And I blew up. I cursed at her. I told her, you fat so-and-so. And and, uh, and, uh, and I said, you know, I can kill all of you in this room and you won't be able to leave. Uh, stupidest things you ever want to see in your entire life. And anyway, the doctor said to me, John, all we want to do is help you. And it hit me right in my heart. And I started to cry. And I ran out of the room. It's like I almost ran out inside my shoes. That's how small I felt. And from that day on, they gave me two more weeks in treatment. And that's when things used to change. And um, when I got out, I went to these meetings. I didn't like them. I didn't want to go. I didn't want to join a new religion, uh, these uh, self-help groups and all this. And uh, But I kept going. They said, keep going. And I kept going. And I kept going. And I kept going. And and I would go in and i say, well, when is this going to get better? This sucks. And he said, did you use today? I said, no. He said, well, it's already better, John. And, and I didn't understand. They said, don't go around your old friends, uh, the old places where you used to use. Well, you know, after three months, I got a little crazy. I said, look, the hell with this. I went to my friend's nightclub, and I'm sitting there with my friends, and they're drinking, and all of a sudden, they would leave the table and come back with white you know, powder on their nose. And I said, wait, I don't belong here anymore. So I left. And then about a month later, I was broke as a joke. What happened was I wound up getting divorced. I wound up living in a hotel room that a friend of mine gave me. And uh, I just couldn't believe how my life turned out. Here I am, broke, living in a hotel room. Uh, I had a bicycle that somebody loaned me because my wife got the house, the car, uh, everything. And um, I had a little jar where I used to put my quarters in when I had quarters. And my kids used to come and visit me. And we all used to cry together. And then HIV came around. I said, well, that's great. I don't like uh, using contraceptives. So here I am. I want to catch a disease now. And I'm all alone. And I'm broke. And this is recovery. This is insane. What am I doing here? But for some reason, I don't know why, I kept going to these meetings. I kept going to my aftercare program. I go. I went to therapy, and I just kept doing it. And little by slowly, things started to change. But being a good addict, okay, one day I said, you know, screw this. A guy called me on the phone, and he says, John, could you introduce me to your connections? So I used to sell kilos of cocaine, too. So... I says, well, man, I'm in recovery. I don't do that anymore. He said, look, just introduce me. You don't have to do anything. I'll give you some money. I said, okay. So I brought it to the Colombians. We're in the house. There's a kilo of cocaine on the table. All right. And these guys all have guns and they know who I am with the karate and all that stuff. 
And I went to put my finger in the Coke to taste it. And I said, what am I doing here? I jumped up. Everybody went to grab their guns. I said, relax. I says, take care of business with him. I'm out of here. And I left. I sat in my car, shaking, crying, and sweating. It was like I, my body was drenched. And that was the last time I did anything like that. And as time went on, went on, uh, my friend that owned the hotel, I told him, listen, why don't you change this place? It was a, a, an adult living facility into a three-quarter way house. A three-quarter way house is where uh, addicts and alcoholics live. They have to go to meetings. They have to piss clean. Uh, they have to get a job. And um, he said, okay. So we turned it into a three-quarter way house, and it was very successful. It was the Tudor Hotel. Then I came up with an idea to have open up a treatment center. Now, the only thing I knew about treatment is that I was in a treatment center. That's just about what I knew. So I lied to my friend, and I said, look, I got this famous doctor that wants to open up a treatment center. He says, yeah. He goes, he knew him. He said, well, how much money do you need? And what do I know how much money we need? Oh, I said, oh, a quarter of a million dollars. He says, if you get that doctor, you got it. I said, yeah, okay. So I went into, I went into the Mount Sinai Hospital where I went to treatment, and I went to the doctor, and I walked in, and he says, hey, John, how you doing? I said, listen, doc, I got a quarter of a million dollars. How would you like to open up your own treatment center? So he was a comedian. He says, you know, John, before you walked in there, I was thinking about that. So we left, and we went up opening up a hospital-based program. I was 14 months clean at the time. And uh, I couldn't believe it. Here I am in a wing of a hospital. I'm fixing it up. Uh, you know, I put pictures on a wall with uh, motivational pictures. And, and we designed a holistic program. In other words, we, we, we got really good food for them. We did meditation. We did exercise program. We gave them vitamins. And nobody was doing stuff like that. The doctor believed in us. And I hired a bunch of people that gave, when I was in treatment, I didn't know it was unethical to go to another program and steal their staff. You know, at least I wasn't thinking of it at that time. I know now. But anyway, I got a lot of them to come. And my therapist who helped me uh, was making 29000 a year. I offered him 50000 He was scared to come over. But his wife talked him into it, and that's what he did. And um, we were packed. Right away, because everybody knew this doctor and knew these people. And um, what wound up happening was we couldn't make payroll, which was impossible. And they said, your, your friend who put up the money was stealing. I said, well, how can he steal? He doesn't have any contact with the money or the checkbook. What are you talking about? So anyway, my friend that put up the money said, John, they're stealing. I said, no, they're in recovery, man. They don't now, here I am, a street kid who never trusted anybody. All of a sudden, I got recovery, and I got, you know, I got sober, and I got stupid. But anyway, I said, no, they're in recovery. They wouldn't do that. I didn't know the doctor was only three years in recovery. So was the other guy, which is new in recovery. So I went into the doctor's office. I says, hey, are you stealing? So he looked at me, put his head down. He says, you know, John, I got a, I got a sex addiction, and I was you know, buying hookers. I was buying apartments for them and everything like that. And I couldn't believe it. But my therapist told me that, hey, we want you out of here. 
Would you, we want your friend out of here, and you got to sign papers stating that uh, you, you're giving up your percentage of the business. I said, what are you talking about? You know, well, if you don't do that, your friend's never going to get any money back, and we'll just open up another corporation, and uh, you're out. So here I am. You know, what I did when I started this company, okay, I um, I only went to the ninth grade, so I had to go back to school. I got my GED. Uh, I, I started in the, in college to get my um, 300 hours of uh, addiction training, and then I had to get 6,000 hours of supervised training in order to get my, what is known as a certified addiction professional, CAP, so, so I could do therapy. Anyway, what wound up happening is I couldn't believe that they were saying this to me. Here's my doctor that helped me, and here's my therapist. And my therapist didn't like the fact that his client was his boss. I didn't feel like his boss. I just was so happy to, to help people and, and put this thing. I couldn't believe that I did this. And, you know, and uh, well, that's what happened. Anyway, um, they said, look, we're going to give you the outpatient part of this program. And there was only three clients in it. And he says, there's only three clients in that. Well, if you take that, you take nothing. And your, and your buddy that gave us the money, we'll give him accounts receivables and he can get most of his money back. So I didn't know what to do. And I says, okay. So I was so angry that I called up my uncle, who's a hitman, And I told him what happened. He says, look, I'll be on the next plane. I'll take care of this. And then thank God recovery kicked in. I called him back and said, no, no, no. I, I, we settled it out, which we didn't. But I said, we settled it out. You don't have to come. Uh, thank God I changed my mind. So anyway, what wound up happening was they gave me the outpatient. I came up with an idea how to take people from the inpatient and make continuum of care to the outpatient. And the outpatient blew up. And um, for six years, I worked under that, watching them make millions of dollars with my ideas, my program and me making a salary. But that was okay. I was getting my hours. And, you know, I, I just had to tell myself, look, it's going to change. Eventually, I'll get out of here. I learned everything there is to learn about running a treatment center from every department. I started to make a name for myself. And this guy, this therapist, kept on trying to get rid of me. And he got this guy, Jimmy, to, um, who was very well known in the community, all right, he was a therapist. And he says, look, this guy, John, uh, the clients don't like him. His charts are terrible. Uh, I want you to go in there and look at everything. So Jimmy went in, and Jimmy was a boxer, me being a karate guy. We got along. But for two weeks, he was sitting in my group. He was checking all my charts. And he pulled me aside one day, and he says, okay, what's really going on here? I say, Why? He said, first of all, the clients love you. They don't want to even leave the group. Second of all, your charts are fine. There's nothing wrong with your charts. So I told him what happened. You know, now I understand. So he went back and told his therapist, said, listen, oh, the therapist was the owner of the program now. Uh, this guy's an asset to you. What are you doing? So that ended that part. And it was almost, it was six years. So what happened was I wind up, couldn't take it anymore. I got my, my supervised hours. I got signed off. And I said, you know what? I can't take this no more. 
This guy is a thorn in my side. He's helped save my life. And look what he did. So I went into his office and I told my sponsor, Jimmy became my sponsor, the guy who was overseeing my, my program. And he said, John, just don't do anything crazy. I said, no, I'm not going to do anything crazy. I went into the office. I slammed the door. I said, let me tell you something. I am going to rearrange your face. No doctor could fix it. I said, that's number one. And number two, I'm going to call my uncle up. He's going to come down and shoot your knees out. Now, he knew who my uncle was because my uncle got hooked up on crack cocaine years before. And what happened was he was in group one day, and I told him what he did. They, I guess they thought it was exaggerating. And one of the therapists come running in my office and says, your uncle, your uncle. I said, well, what did he do? He's telling everybody all the people he killed. I said, I told you what he did. So he says, oh, my God. So this therapist, who became the owner of the treatment center, knew my uncle. Soon as I said that, I got my contract within about two hours, which they never gave me after all those years they were supposed to get. I was supposed to get 25% of the outpatient. I never got 20 cents. So what wound up happening was I got the contract, uh, and within a month, I quit. They gave me $80,000 to buy out the contract, and uh, I left. So my friend said, look, I got this other guy that wants to open up another treatment center. I said, oh, yeah. He says, I says, I'll help. He says, he needs a business plan. He says, I don't know how to make a business plan. He says, I'll help you. We made a business plan. I, put the, I thought I put the business plan on my briefcase. And just before I was to meet the guy, I go to get the, the business plan. I left it home. I couldn't believe it. Because I guess I was so nervous. So anyway... I didn't know what to do, so I went forward anyway. So I went and I met with the guy and I told him what happened. He says, I don't care. I know who you are. I researched you. He threw a napkin on the table. He says, tell me how much you need and what it's for. I said, okay. So that's what I did. Uh, I told him, he said, what do you need? I said, well, a quarter of a million dollars. I don't know. I keep coming up with a quarter of a million dollars. He said, you got it. And we built the program and I met another guy. Uh, at a meeting, and I really liked him, and I asked him to be my sponsor, and he was up in West Palm Beach. I lived in Miami, and um, he was working for a hospital program. He was making, I don't know, twenty-five or $30,000. I wound up giving him 50000 in the piece of the company and uh, to work with me. So in about a year, we built it up. We got Jayco Accreditation, which is the gold standard in the industry. The place was packed. And one day, the guy that put up the money came into my office and he goes, hey, you spent, you spent uh, what was it, $700 on, on phone calls. I says, yeah, and I brought in $70,000 worth of business. He says, I don't care, you're fired. I said, what? I'm not fired, I'm your partner. He says, you better read your contract. Well, I did the same stupid mistake I did the first time. I didn't get a contract, I didn't get a lawyer. And I didn't get a lawyer this time either. So I read the bottom of the contract and said he could fire me. I was in shock. And, and then I told my friend, who was my sponsor, who I gave the job to, that, come on, we'll leave. He don't know how to run the program. And he can't do this. He says, I can't leave. I just bought a house. And I, I can't. So I says, what? I says, okay. So I... I took my stuff out of my desk. I got my little box. 
walked over into the parking lot and sat on the on the car and I just cried. I couldn't believe this happened again. And here I am. Same thing. I got another eighty thousand dollars. We went to court. I don't know. Eighty thousand dollars is the the numbers that always came up. And uh, I had a little spending addiction, so that I went through that money like nothing. You know, most addicts are cross addicted, and um, either the gambler, sex addiction, gam- uh, spending addiction, or whatever. So anyway, long story short, here I am again, no job, no anything. Um, I wind up. Um, getting an invitation to be the clinical director for a treatment center, which was an indigent program for uh, people that addicts, alcoholics who had comorbidity. In other words, they had mental health issues and also they had HIV. So it was an old TC. That's an old style of treatment that really is a shaming style of treatment that may work for some people. These guys were homeless and they worked in this program. And anyway, they used to feed them cakes and chocolates and we used to get our food donated at lunchtime. And then the clients would act out and we would put them on this bench and put a sign around their neck. I said, this is ridiculous. But, you know, I tried to change a bunch of things and it was very, I was teaching, teaching them karate. I was teaching them meditation and stuff like that. But eventually I had to get out of there. I couldn't take it anymore. I said, no, no, this is no good. So I resigned. And um, here I am, again, running around. And a girl I was going out with at the time says, why don't you open up your own program? I said, oh, no, I don't want nothing to do with programs. So I listened to her and I says, okay, I only got $300 in the bank. How am I going to open up anything? She says, you can do it. Well, here we go again. So I went to a friend of mine that had this little house on the side of his property, which was like 750 square feet building. And I said, okay. I went to my friend Bill and I said, Bill, how much rent for that bill, that little building? I want to open up an outpatient program. He says to me, how much money you got? I said, I got $300. He said, tell you what, John, get going for another couple of two or three months and then pay me the $300 a month. Don't worry about it. I said, really? I said, okay. So that's what I did. And long story short, because I can go on forever with the story. I got together with a doctor uh, the business started doing well. But the way I, I worked, if people would give me money, I would put it in my pocket, and I wouldn't keep any books. And my my friend that I worked with, Jerry, uh, I said to him, hey, Jerry, why don't you, I'll give you 50%. Why don't you be my partner? He was a good businessman. So he said, right, let me see your books. I said, what books? He, said, he started to laugh. He said, what do you mean, what books? So I told him, no, listen, the clients still pay me. He said, no, 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 no. So anyway, he came and took over the business part. And we started to grow. Then I got hooked up with a Dr. Mash, who was a pioneer in Ibogaine treatment. Ibogaine treatment is a psychedelic, partial psychedelic that detoxes people in 24 hours. But you can't do it here in the United States. You had to do it in St. Kitts. So everywhere she went, my name kept popping up. And she finally came to me. And she would give me her clients. We would house them. We would put a heart monitor on them and check for 24 hours, see how their heart is. And then we would do uh, uh, blood work on them. And we also would check to see toxicology, what what uh, drugs they had on board. And then I would take them to St. Kitts. Uh, that's where we had the treatment center because it was a Schedule One drug. You can't do it here in the United States. 
And I took them to St. Kitts. And um, they would get detoxed in 24 hours. Just amazing. Heroin addicts, methadone, you name it. And it was hard to believe. And they were, they had no uh, uh, cravings. And they were totally detoxed. Maybe a little sleep problems, but that was about it. And that stuck around the craving without cravings for anywhere from 30 to 90 days, depending if they were fast metabolized, slow metabolized, and how their liver was functioning. So that's how the program started building up. Then we got my partner's friend, friend his brother, got my partner's son who knew the internet. And we brought him in and we gave him a partnership. And that's when we started to really grow. I was branding the company. He was doing the internet and doing the marketing. And the way I did it was that everybody used to laugh at me. They said, oh, yeah, go to Giordano. He's going to give you vitamins and he's going to give you some, this what they call holistic treatments, and you're going to be well. Well, they didn't really understand what I was doing. We were doing all kinds of, we were giving them nutrients. We were doing uh, uh, acupuncture we were doing so many different modalities to help addicts, not just psychological um, group individual. We did family therapy, everything. And as we grew, we added more things. And eventually what happened was we started uh, to grow. And then there was a building across the street that wasn't for sale. And my partner said, it's not for sale. It's everything's for sale. So I went across the street to the owner and I said, Hey, look, how about if I give you $25,000, more than what the buildings worth. She says, yeah. I said, yeah. I said, but you got to hold a mortgage because we didn't have any money, really. You know, so the bottom line was she said, yes, we moved into that building. And then there's a lot more stuff that went on, but I, I'll just cut to the chase. So what happened was eventually we kept on building the treatment center, building, but in the process, we had no money. Sometimes we couldn't make payroll. We had creditors chasing us. And we kept giving people free treatment that didn't have any money, but, you know, they really were motivated and we put some people in treatment for free anyway. But eventually we started to grow and it started to take off and we started to make some money. And then one of the client's father, who was a multi-multi-millionaire, he saved his son's life. And he says, you guys do such great work. What do you need? And we said, well, we need a bigger place. Anyway, he bought us seven buildings. I know that sounds crazy, but that's what he did. We had our offices in one place and we had our housing in another place. And we wind up being a 62 bed facility. Now in the beginning, I only had one employee. That was me. Then we had two was Jerry and I, and then we had three. It was the administrator girl. That was my secretary, let's say. And it became incredible treatment center. We did massage. We did acupuncture. We did, um, uh, immuno acid therapy. We did research there. We did hyperbaric medicine. That's oxygen under pressure that help heal the brain. We did colonics. We did massage to, uh, to do lymphatic drainage to get the, the the drugs out of the cells of the body. We did sound therapy, neurofeedback, aromatherapy. I mean, we did so many different things that our clients were getting well. And staying well, we had our aftercare program for life as long as we were alive and they were alive. And we just kept building and building and building. And eventually, we had 147 employees. We had a reputation that was incredible. 
my my partner son Jerry was incredible with the internet. We were getting 800 to 1,000 calls a day. We were selling the call. We only had 62 beds. We were selling the other calls for a quarter of a million dollars a month. I mean, it was insanity. Here I am, a kid from the South Bronx, only went to the ninth grade. I only have a GED and got some certifications. And then I wind up meeting this Dr. Blum, who was the geneticist who found the addiction gene. We started doing research. I started being on his team of researchers. I wound up traveling all over the world, lecturing about holistic medicine uh, to neuroscience conferences. I went to treatment conferences. I wind up at the end, now I'm, I'm in 77 or 76 medical and scientific peer-reviewed journals um, uh, on the, um, uh, the editorial board for a journal. Um, I wrote three books, and one I co-authored with a bunch of other scientists and researchers. Uh, I mean, look, all I can tell the audience, I tell you, is just my life has been a whirlwind. Um, I got an honorary doctor degree for the things I did in the community. Um, also, what happened was, even while I was using, I got the Luther King Award for helping the black community. Um, what happened was I threw a concert, James Brown, it was 60,000 people showed up it was a, for a flea market. They had a thousand businesses on the roof. This is what I was using, by the way. So I'm going backwards. Okay. And uh, what wound up happening was I said, we need a theme for the flea market. So I said, look, we're revitalizing Liberty City. I went to the, the SBA people, Small Business Association, to help people in the community how to grow their business, how to buy wholesale, how to run their business. I went to all the churches in the neighborhood. It was in Liberty City in Overtown. I was the black community and I'm dancing with all in the churches and singing and I got them to back me. And I invited President Reagan to come to the flea market for the grand opening with James Brown. Everybody laughed at me and um, they didn't laugh for long because I got a letter back from the White House stating that he's sorry but due to uh, scheduling, he couldn't come. And uh, they sent Carrie Meeks, who at the time, well, then she became Senator Meeks. And, you know, they check you out. And she went to the Martin Luther King Foundation and told them what I was doing for the community. And they gave me the Martin Luther King Award of 60,000 people. It was unbelievable. And I don't want to give away most of the book I already have. And you'll see some more things in there. But um, anyway, here we are in... 2012, uh, the treatment center was flourishing. And um, my partner got sick. Uh, he got four years previous in 2008. He got cancer and he got rid of the cancer from his thyroid. Then he got cancer with his kidney. Then he had a stroke. He's a tough old goat boy. And um, he really couldn't function properly. So I had to take over his job, which he taught me and, and learned real well with. And um, the son wanted to sell. He wanted to get out because his dad wasn't there anymore. And I said, okay, you know. Anyway, we wind up, one guy wanted to give us $21 million for the business. I said, no. And this kid, Adam, uh, said, I have somebody who wants to give you $45 million. I said, I says, hey, I don't want anything less. Well, actually, he did somebody, the guy who wanted $45 million. 
I told him I wanted 45 million. And he said, the guy will give you the 45 million. I says, okay. You know, I thought I was dreaming. Anyway, that's what went down. And I sold, we sold it in 2012 for $45 million. How, how can plant and hyperbaric medicine be used to treat people with addiction? Tell us about that. Okay. And hyperbarics, remember, it's, your brain gets damaged from drugs and alcohol. And nobody's going to argue with that. And hyperbarics actually can heal your brain, right? It heals, it heals wounds. It was used for the bends. It heals wounds in the body. They also be using it now for PTSD uh, and also for um, other brain injuries. So that's what we did there. And as far as the plant medicine, Ibogaine, uh, they're right now they're going under Dr. Mash is doing FDA trials. Uh, it's an incredible plant medicine that really works. And uh, that's where we're at. Well, let's talk about this next question is a two-part question. How has COVID-19 and the pandemic affected the opioid crisis? And what what is missing in regular treatment centers today oh, that boy, you see missing? That one. Okay, real quick. Uh, first of all, we had 93,000 deaths last year. Okay, with OD, people OD'd. That's number one. Now, benzos are becoming a big thing, and people are dying from those. Benzodiazepines like Valium and Xanax and people ODing on that. I'm going to tell you what's missing. It's not a medical model. It's a psychological model, which is ridiculous. It's not just psychological. People, addicts that have, if you have a low thyroid, you're going to have depression and anxiety. If you're predisposed for addiction, you're going to look to medicate. You have leaky gut syndrome, H. pylori infection in your gut, all right? It gives you depression and anxiety. Low testosterone gives you depression and anxiety. Closed head injuries also can give you depression, anxiety, and also behavioral problems. Hypoglycemia, especially with addicts, uh, with alcoholics, causes depression and anxiety. If addicts have that, people have that, they look to medicate. And we're not looking at any of this stuff. We're just looking at mommy left you with three, daddy beat you when you were 10, and that's why you use. Not true. That's only a piece of the puzzle. Important piece, but only a piece. Well, how do you feel like isolation, you know, people having to stay away from each other has affected the relapse rate? Well, it affected it tremendously. Addicts get bored easily, okay? They're loners. And when we're left alone to ourselves, we're in a dangerous place. So, but all the stress of not working, uh, being home, especially people with kids, and the kids are running around, they're not going to school, all the stressors and things like that, it's been a nightmare. People have been dying like, like flies out there. How do you feel like government policy has affected addiction treatment, good or bad? What government policies? <laughs> It's the same policies they always had. Throw money at it and see what lands. Do you feel like, you know, a lot of things are going virtual and telehealth? How, how does that affect addiction treatment? Is that telehealth a good thing or a bad thing when it comes to addiction treatment? Well, look at it this way. It's always better to have, you know, in person. But because of this COVID, 
something's better than nothing. But, you know, it's, it's okay. But what else can we do? You know, some people talk about addiction might be in their genetics. How do you feel like genetic, genetics and diet plays a role in addiction? Well, I know it's genetics because I work with Dr. Blum. He's the geneticist who found the addiction gene. It's, uh, he found it in 1976 with Dr. Ernie Noble. If they look it up, they see it's the DRD2 ALE1 variant gene. And if you have that gene, you're prone to addiction. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to be an addict or an alcoholic because there's such a thing as epigenetics, which means the social environment can change the gene expression. But there is a gene for addiction and alcoholism. Are there any upcoming projects that you're working on or projects that people need to know about since you're on the research board and doing all these things? Yes, I am doing... um, Right now, I'm working at South Beach Detox in North Miami Beach. Uh, I'm putting in, I'm changing the whole program around where what I'm doing is I'm putting in uh, brain mapping to see. uh, They use what is known as QEEGs and measure the electric output of the brain where it's, uh, they get a baseline, they see where it's deficient, and they help build that part of the brain up. We do amino acid therapy there. That helps to um, upregulate dopamine. We got about 15 studies with this amino acid compound that Dr. Blum formulated, acupuncture, auricular therapy. So we're doing a bunch of different things. We're going to put in, I'm putting in music therapy and sound therapy and light and uh, sound therapy, which help with depression and anxiety. So we're, we're doing a lot of different stuff to make the treatment center a little bit more unique. Uh, and better for the clients. So go ahead and throw out some information, contact information. How can people keep in touch with you and see all the new things they that you're working? They can go to my website, John, the letter J, Giordano, G-I-O-R-D-A-N-O dot com. They could find everything on there, my phone number, everything. Any final thoughts before we close it oh, out? Yeah. Uh, if they want, get that book. It's helped to motivate people. The Kid from the South Bronx Who Never Gave Up. And my other book for addiction is How to Beat Your Addiction and Live a Quality Life. Ladies and gentlemen. They can get it on Amazon at the website. Perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, John Giordano. John, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Listeners. Share this to as many people as possible. Addiction is a real problem in this country. Also, download the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast app. John, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Listeners, share this to as many people as possible. Addiction is a real problem in this country. Also, download the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast app. For more information on the Living the Dream podcast, visit www.djcurveball.com. Until next time, stay focused on living the dream.